Today is December 1st, 2006, and this is the Privacy Podcast. I'm Aaron Titus, podcasting sort of live from my closet. Email me with privacy questions or comments, privacy at aarontitus.net. This is show number nine, Overcoming Institutional Privacy Inertia. Whether it's credit cards, mailing addresses, or social security numbers, all employers and companies deal, to some degree or another, with personal information. If you're like me, you've probably been employed in a place that may not have been as aware of privacy issues as might be prudent. Awakening an organization to the importance of privacy can be an uphill battle, to say the least. Allow me to share one of my experiences. I used to work for a national nonprofit membership organization. Most of the members were middle-aged and not terribly tech-savvy. Like many organizations, we offered limited online services to our members, like an online bookstore, membership renewal, and confidential documents accessible via login. Our website was developed when the Internet wasn't as dangerous a place, or perhaps we were just a little naive when we developed it. But since that time, the Internet had become more dangerous, and our little website hadn't caught up. During an information security audit, I found that with a little looking, and I hesitated to call hacking since that would imply some amount of difficulty, the public had access to each of our members' names, dates of birth, email addresses, phone numbers, home addresses, and other information. I was able to easily access the home address of my former CEO. Because our members were not terribly tech-savvy, the website also went to great lengths to help them log in. Now, in order to protect the current members of the organization, I won't go into any detail, but I was able to log in as a member with full administrative access to change any portion of their profile, including name or password. I was even able to sign in as an unwary member of our board and gain access to confidential board documents. In a separate portion of the website, we listed contact information for hundreds of our national leaders. When I reviewed my organization's server logs, I found that some guy in Nigeria was systematically mining the names, email addresses, and contact information for all of them. What's worse is we didn't have a privacy policy. You have probably encountered my Nigerian friend or one of his cohorts if you've ever received emails titled, Your Urgent Response, Please, from some guy who miraculously inherited $20 million from a deceased African head of state. While the storylines differ, they consistently offer you about a 10% cut for your help to transfer the money to a secure bank account. (laughs) Yeah, right. The industry refers to these as the Nigerian 419 scam in reference to the portion of the Nigerian code it violates. You may have blown off these fraudulent emails, but this scam bilks an estimated $2 billion out of the United States every year. I took the results of my information audit, together with the server logs, to the company directors. They responded with muted concern. While they empathized with the vague moral obligation to keep the members safe, they saw the problem as a very low-cost risk. Consequently, they were willing to expend few or no resources to fix the problem. Even if they didn't articulate it, their dangerously weak inductive reasoning went something like this. Since our members have never complained about data breaches, data breaches have probably never occurred or, if they have, they were harmless. And since a data breach has never occurred, it is unlikely to occur in the future. If a breach does occur in the future, it will likely be harmless. And even if a breach occurs in the future, 
and it causes harm, nobody will be able to demonstrate that the information that caused the harm came from us. Or in other words, they won't be able to pin us if something goes wrong. Despite the logical and circular flaws in that argument, it's not an unreasonable or uncommon argument to make. It's an economically efficient argument, and one that you would expect to hear from any reasonable, bottom-line-oriented organization. It's also a clear example of why the market will never sufficiently value privacy without legislative help. It has been said that people often don't see the light until they feel the heat. I figure that if I could demonstrate some theory of liability for negligently making personal information available online, my organization would feel the heat and consequently see the light of why privacy matters. So I began to build my case. Since February 2005, PrivacyRights.org has documented more than 97 million instances of severe identity breach. That equates to more than 159,000 breaches every single day. I began to research to see if these companies were being held civilly liable for these data breaches. <laughs> Astonishingly, the answer was almost always no, at least not any real liability. Most theories of liability are state-specific and would not apply to my organization. But regardless of the theory, proving harm is nearly impossible for a victim, since the victim must show that the information leaked was the same information that caused him harm. In other words, the directors were right. If something bad happens to a member, they won't be able to pin the organization. In fact, unless a particular type of information is specifically protected by a privacy statute such as the Fair Credit Reporting Act, the Federal Privacy Act, HIPAA, or state statute, there is little basis for liability in the first place. Examples of protected data types include credit card information, medical data, social security numbers, or credit history. Some state law governs security breaches, but the laws are patchy at best. To my knowledge, there are no privacy laws that govern privacy as a blanket concept. To demonstrate this point, I visited my state attorney general's website. It contains easy-to-understand restatements of the legal rights for tenants, consumers, families, and other groups. I clicked on Identity Theft, Information Security, Internet Privacy, and Protect Your Privacy. Not one of them contained a single mention of a legal right. Instead, they were lists of defensive best practices for consumers. The Supreme Court has addressed privacy in terms of, quote, a reasonable expectation of privacy. But several commentators have begun to question whether that is the best standard. For example, in light of the NSA's domestic spying program, do you now have a reasonable expectation of privacy when calling a friend overseas? Since we know that the government has tried to subpoena keyword searches from major search engines in the past, do you have a reasonable expectation that your searches are private? Can you reasonably expect that Google will not share that information at will? In absence of a privacy policy, do the members of my organization have a reasonable expectation that their home address will not be made public? Instead, several privacy commentators now suggest that a better standard is need for privacy instead of reasonable expectation of privacy. I would go one step further and challenge the presumption of permanent ownership in personal data. With few statutory exceptions, the presumption is that once I grant my personal information to another, I may yield all ownership interests in that information to the person I give it to, kind of like selling a car. Except I don't think that's right. Though information is often treated as property, 
it differs from most property in one important aspect. Even after my personal information is disseminated or sold, the information retains the potential to adversely affect my well-being. Think about a car, for example. Once I sell the car, I no longer have to fix it, make monthly payments on it, and it won't affect my credit. If someone crashes the car, it's not my problem. It's sold, gone. I have no more interest in it. However, if I sell or give my identity to someone, like a bank, school, or the government, that information can come back to affect me. If someone crashes my credit, puts me on a terror watch list, or tracks my online movements, it can haunt me for the rest of my life. Consequently, I have the need to retain some degree of control, or perhaps ownership interest, in my personal information as a way to protect my well-being. I need the ability to know how and why my information is being shared, and the ability to stop it from being shared. Whether you call it personal private information, medical information, transaction experience information, product reference information, or physical description information, the point is, they're all me. Now back to my organization's website problem. After months of pushing, I was able to get a limited security fix for leaders' email addresses online. That was a huge step forward and probably reduced spam for our leaders. However, maintaining the fix requires staff training. With the organization's high employment turnover, it's frankly unlikely the security fix lasted more than a few months or a year or two after its first implementation. This means that the members of the organization will probably have to continue to deal with emails from rich beneficiaries of deposed Nigerian leaders. Discouraged, I took some degree of comfort in knowing that our tiny organization was fairly anonymous and would likely avoid the notice of hackers and data miners. In resigned exasperation, I told my colleague, Our best defense is the fact that nobody knows we exist. Fortunately, we're just a little convenience store on the information superhighway. Yeah, he chuckled. 7-Elevens never get robbed. Well, that does it for this episode. Thanks for joining me. But before I go, here's this episode's privacy tip. Using any major search engine, search for your email address, and you might be surprised at what you find. Keep in mind, though, that by searching for your email address, Google, Yahoo, or AOL, whichever search engine you use, captures and saves your search string. Many people have personal websites and guest books. If you ever write HTML code, you're familiar with the HTML mail to code. You use this code in a hyperlink in order to make an email a link. If you make websites, do us all a favor and just don't use this outmoded code. It's a magnet for spam bots. Thousands of spam bots constantly scour the internet looking for email addresses. If you use the mail to function, which many guestbooks do, you are the low-hanging fruit for these spam bots and you might as well just sign up for spam. As a matter of habit, don't sign guestbooks. If you decide that signing a guestbook is absolutely necessary, don't, for any reason, include your email address in the guestbook. Though nothing is foolproof, there are JavaScript tricks, as well as server-side code, that can significantly reduce the occurrence of spam. You can easily find more information on hundreds of online sources. I really appreciate listener feedback. 
send email to privacy at aarontitus.net or leave a note online, aarontitus.net slash privacy. You can access this podcast at aarontitus.net slash privacy or on iTunes. Music today was One Kiss by Timothy C. Lee, available online at podsafeaudio.com. Transcripts from this or any other show are available upon request. Sort of live and sleep-deprived from my closet, I'm Aaron Titus.